going back to the theme of feeling lost, the reason why I felt so lost and the reason why I was striving to get the heck out of here was because in my personal life, I've had a lot of trauma and a lot of drama in like in my personal household and family. And I would always ask myself, like, why me? Mm. Why my family? Hello, hello, and welcome back to the I'm Lost So What podcast. This is Cassandra Lay, and I am super excited for today's episode with Elizabeth Raquel Garcia. She is a global education DEI specialist. So let me share a little bit about Elizabeth so you all can get to know her a little bit before we dive into the conversation. Elizabeth was a first-gen low-income student from the outskirts of East LA who was able to study abroad during her undergrad studies four times for nearly for free. Yes, Faux free. Her experiences abroad changed her life for the better forever. Since then, she's built her career as a global education DEI specialist on a mission to support historically underserved students in accessing more equitable education opportunities through her company, Access Equitable Education. Her and her work have been featured everywhere by companies like Go Overseas and Diversity Abroad to government organizations such as the U.S. Department of State and the Mexican Secretary of Foreign Relations. So in this conversation, we are diving into what it was like for her to find her roots, what it was like for her to really document her family's history and become a family historian, and of course, what global education DEI specialist actually does and all of those good things. So I am super excited for this conversation. So let's just dive in. Hello, hello, everyone. I'm Cassandra Lay, and you're listening to I'm Lost, So What? The podcast exploring between belonging and carving your own path. For all the peeps out there who kind of know what you're doing, but still question what the fuck is going on. Yeah, I'm with you. Hey, Elizabeth. Hello. Hi, Cassandra. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Tired, but good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like that answer is very common whenever we talk to each other. (laughs) Yes, different time zones, but you know, we're both happy to be here. This is actually like an okay time for both of us, right? Yeah, this is like a great time. Um, For all the people listening, we are um, nine hours apart. So finding a good time is always difficult. Um, But I'm super excited to have you here and to have you on the podcast. Um, I feel like this conversation is going to be really awesome. So let's just dive into it. The first question that I always ask folks is, what does being lost mean to you? And can you describe the feeling of being lost? (sighs) Yeah, so that is a great question. It's also a big question. Wow. What is being lost to me? I mean, there's that quote unquote cheesy saying, you don't know where you're going unless you know where you're coming from. And yeah, that is a trope, you know, that we see time and time again, especially in like literature and in movies. It's, It's that common, that common theme. You don't know where you're going unless where you're coming from. And in my case, I believe that's my definition of being lost. And, um, that was the definition of who I was for many years. I had no idea where I was going because I had no idea where I was coming from. So I spent many, many years lost. So as cheesy as that saying is, I find it to be absolutely true and understand why it's a universal theme in literature and movies because it's true and it just, it makes sense. Yeah, and we'll dive more into it in a a bit, but. Yeah, I know, um, I'm like, oh, this goes into like everything that we're talking about right now. (laughs) So I guess- if you are ever feeling lost, where is that feeling like in your body? What does that actually feel like for you? Um, because yes, I 
I agree. I feel like a lot of the times and a lot of the other guests that have come on, they've always described being lost as either really anxious feeling or, you know, they are lacking self-confidence. Some people are like, oh, it's actually really exciting because I get to explore and it's almost like an adventure. I don't think anybody has actually said like, oh, being lost is basically not knowing where you're coming from. So what is that feeling? Like, can you... I guess, contextualize it, intellectualize it. I feel like my therapist would be like, Uh we're not supposed to intellectualize our feelings. You're just supposed to feel them. But, you know, for the people. Yeah, Yeah. I would say that feeling lost for me, um, where it feels in my body or where I I have a sensation of feeling lost, definitely. For many, many years, I felt very lost in my head and also in my heart. So those were the two main places where I felt the impact of being lost and not knowing where I was coming from or where I was going. In the headspace, I definitely felt like overwhelmed, anxious, scared, unsure of what I was doing and why. And, you know, it felt very, um, what's the word, chaotic up in here, Mm. very chaotic all up in the head because I had no idea what I was doing or why I was doing the things I was doing. And in my heart, the sensation is just a feeling of emptiness. I've had that feeling of emptiness for so many years. Um, and anytime I feel lost and or alone, those those two sem- sensations come back. Either there's a lot happening up here, I'm feeling overwhelmed in my head, but I've got the head part under control now. But every now and then I will still feel like that emptiness in my heart. It's kind of like an aching feeling mm. um, and it doesn't feel good, but it, it still happens to me time to time. Mm. Oh my gosh. Thank you first for like sharing so openly about that. And as soon as you said emptiness, I was like, oh, yeah, it was I think I was talking about this with somebody. I, I think it was Chloe on the podcast. I was saying like this feeling of yearning. Mm. Actually, Spotify classified me as somebody who listens to music that represents feelings and emotions of yearning. <laughs> but this like yearning feeling, which to me is almost like the emptiness because it's like I'm looking for something and it, it's like I'm trying to find it, but it's just like this longing. So yes, I I feel like everything that we're going to talk about um, and all the questions I have prepared um, is going to definitely explore that. So let's just dive into it. So I wanted to go into finding your roots. And I know when you studied and lived abroad, you reconnected with your family in Chile, uh, Mexico, I believe, and then a couple other countries. And for all the people who don't know, um, Elizabeth lives in East LA. So what was that process like to reconnect with family there? I don't know if you had like met them before, you had never met them, you knew about them. Yeah, what was that? What was that like for you? Yeah, reconnecting with my family and my lost loved ones abroad was a huge, I don't know how to how do I say? It was a very intense experience. So much happened. And I didn't know much of my family from Chile at all. Uh, My family from Mexico, I grew up around more or less. I've I've always known about them and have been in contact with them. And um, most of my family from Mexico lives in the United States here in East LA. But a lot of my other relatives who stayed in Mexico, um, I still, you know, saw them once every year, once every couple of years when they would come visit. And I went to Mexico when I was like five to go visit. That was my first 
first and last time for like 15, 16 years. So reconnecting with my families and my particularly like my long lost families in Chile was a very intense experience for me. And yeah, I didn't know (laughs) that they even existed, my family in Chile. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I guess this ties into the theme, like you don't know where you're going until you know where you're coming from. But interestingly enough, for folks who are listening who don't know, I decided to study abroad um, when I was in college because I was having a really, really rough time living on campus as a first-gen low-income student. And I found myself in a super unique opportunity to study abroad basically for free um, from a great financial aid package. And um, I won $25,000 in scholarships. And I needed to get away from campus, so I decided to first study abroad in Brazil because I was enamored by Brazilian music, particularly Bolsa Nova, for years, years, years. I had this fascination with Brazil and Brazilian music. I really romanticized it growing up. And then when I got there, I was having like this existential crisis and I got to the point of, wait, why am I here? (laughs) Mm. Why am I learning Portuguese if I don't even speak Spanish? Mm. I don't even know my family. And, you know, I think the universe works in very interesting ways. But around that same time when I was having those thoughts, my mom found out that she had a sister who was living in Chile that she never knew about. And yeah, to add some context, my mom was born in Bolivia. And she also knew nothing about her family in Chile because she had never been very complicated history there. She had never been, she didn't know that she had siblings. And then she found out that she had a sister. And when I was in Brazil, that's when I decided, okay, you're in South America. You didn't spend any money while you were here because you were too busy crying in your apartment. So, you know, you can use that money and go to Chile and meet your family. And so I did. Um, Wow. Yeah. So did they know that you existed? I guess they did because she reached out to me on Facebook. Wow. Yeah, like, I guess I knew I had some like long lost relatives in Chile because I, you know, you have the tias on Facebook who comment on all your like photos. But again, I didn't speak Spanish. So I was like, okay, these tias, I have no idea who they are. Love them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for the support. Yeah. Wow. Oh, okay. So. As someone who is like Latina American, how important was it for you to find your roots? And what was that feeling like when you actually discovered that you have like long lost family? I think the experience of finding my roots was really um, grounding for me. And it really brought me back to who I am, the essence of who I am, because I spent a long time trying to get away from how do I say I spent a long time faking and I spent a long time trying to fake it till I make it I spent a long time I am talking about like my whole adolescence striving for whiteness Hmm. and trying to get away from my neighborhood from my family from my culture from my language like I I did the most to try to get away. And it really impacted my health and well-being, my mental health, all those things. I went through a whole Zoe Deschanel phase. I was that (laughs) adolescent teenager. I rode the beach cruiser to school in the little um, baby doll dress. And I listened to Bossa Nova 24-7. Like, I was that girl. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I was that teenager. And I do have photos from that time. I looked fantastic. But, like, what was I doing? Um, I was really trying to be anybody who I, you know, I was really trying to be anybody who I wasn't um, Mm. to try to, you know, make a life for for myself, but a life based off of, I guess, anything other than who I really was Mm. and where I come from. 
Oh, that is so interesting. Um, mainly because like as an Asian American, Vietnamese American to be more specific, like I remember I had a, like a similar situation. So back in, maybe not in elementary school, because I think it was like too young to actually understand that I was other different or, you know, whatever else. But definitely in middle school and high school, I also wanted to be white. Like I really wanted to be white. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be popular and I could not be cool or popular being Asian American or Vietnamese American. Of course, there are like the cool Asians, but that's like a whole other conversation for another day. There's like the baby girl Asians, Asian baby girls. I don't know if you know (laughs) that. (laughs) Okay. That's like a whole other separate thing. But I definitely tried my hardest to like, you know, wear the same clothes. I did not have a Zoe de Chanel face though. Um, but I definitely went to like Hollister, Abercrombie and Fitch. I wanted to wear like the skater clothes when that was like really in. And I just like, I remember asking my parents for like certain things that they were like, what the heck? And I remember one time my dad um, actually walked into my room when I was maybe like 14, 15. And he was, I don't know if this is like the nicest thing to say to your daughter, but I think he said it because he was like, what is going on with you? He was like, you're a banana. And I was like, a banana? And he was like, yeah, you are yellow on the outside and white on the inside. And he was like, that's weird. Why are you trying to be a banana? And I didn't realize that it was something that one, he wasn't like happy about. And then also something that like, I think other people could use as like a derogatory term mm-hmm. towards me, but I, I totally understand. And just now, like, I feel like I'm really getting into or trying to learn more about like my roots as well. So that takes me to my other question, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening to this podcast. I hope. Um, hello. Uh, who are part of the diaspora, wh- whatever diaspora you, you are part of, um, and, or they're like multicultural and maybe they also are removed from their roots, whether that is because of like colonization, colonialism, choice, whatever it is. Um, but they are curious to actually like dig back into their roots and see where they come from. Do you have any recommendations for people to start digging into your roots? Because I also feel like this could be a process that mm, I don't want to say is triggering, but I do feel like it's could be a healing process. It could be quite uncomfortable. It could bring up truths that maybe your family doesn't want you to know. I'm just thinking about like an Asian American family. We're very taboo and like we don't talk about things. So, you know, things kind of get swept under the rug. Um, And I feel like that's very similar to other like Black, Indigenous, people of color families. Um, So yeah, how would you recommend somebody get started with digging into their roots? Or do you even think like people should? Yeah, that's a really great question. I recommend that all people get in touch with who they are and where they come from, first of all. So I definitely think that people should. I will say, you know, there's different approaches and different levels and different layers to reconnecting with your roots. And there's many barriers that so many um, BIPOC have when it comes to reconnecting with their roots, particularly Black and Indigenous people due to histories of, you know, genocide and colonization and enslavement and all these, a lot of like laws that ripped people away from their culture and their families. And so that can be really complicated and a very... Um, 
like you mentioned, triggering and tender subject to touch on. So I want folks to keep that in mind, you know, as you are digging for your roots. And I just say that because I know with the different approaches, like I took an approach of becoming a family historian and like going to my country of origin and meeting these long lost family members and sitting down with them and, you know, asking questions and recording our history. And that's a privilege that not many people will ever have. And so on the flip side, I know that, you know, with capitalism and with commercialization and an issue that I really have or that I'm not a big fan of is the fact that I feel that there's so many cheap ways that companies try to sell our cultures to us mm. and try to sell like reconnect with your roots, yeah, um, buy our stuff and wear our, you know, wear this certain type of clothing, um, you know, enroll in this certain kind of, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> Yeah, there's so many different avenues where, you know, companies will try to resell you your culture. And unfortunately, in the United States, um, for so many people who have these barriers when it comes to accessing, you know, where they're from and the people that they're from, sometimes the only thing that is accessible to them is that, you know, cheaply, you know, sold or marketed stuff that these companies are trying to shove down our throats and saying like here this is your culture like now you can embrace who you are because you bought our clothes and you bought our products the Um, necklace (laughs) yes so um but I I do want to say that while you know I have an opinion about those companies and what they're doing I think that whatever anybody does to reconnect with their roots is valid I think Mm. that's totally okay. And I speak from personal experience because I have a sibling who also wants to reconnect with her roots and we do it in completely different approaches, completely different understandings. We identify completely differently. Um, It's very, very fascinating and interesting, but you know, it's her journey and um, I want to honor and respect that because again, it's at the end of the day, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And like, I can't just give her everything that I learned from my time abroad, like I have all my notebooks upstairs with all the data and all the stories and all the information. And um, she wants to start from scratch and do it her way. And that's totally okay, because it's about her, her discovery, right of herself. So that's fine. Everybody Mm -hmm. has their own way of doing this. Super interesting. So that just kind of reminded me of my cousins. So on my dad's side of the family, he is one of, I think, 12, I think. I think, yeah, one of 12. And then uh, my grandparents, they had two other children who were born like even before the 12 now, um, but they passed away in young age in Vietnam. And when I started digging into more of like my cultural heritage and like just our past and our stories, it opened a channel for my cousins who had never really thought about anything like that to also kind of dig in in their own way. And I was doing it through like, oh, I want to read more books written by like Vietnamese uh, boat people. Um, I want to read more like articles that just don't talk about like the Vietnamese American who came over and lived the American dream. That's like the story that I grew up with because that's like the one that my parents lived. But I wanted to understand a little bit more. I wanted to also see different perspectives. Like I consume or consumed a lot of content from like first and second generation um, Vietnamese Americans, people who like have a similar story to me. So I 
I'm familiar with it. And there's like always this, you know, the same rhetoric. And then I was like, but what is it like for a parent? Or what is it like for a grandparent? And once I started doing that, that kind of like helped me have like, I think, a fuller picture of um, my roots, and also helped me, I think, empathize a lot more, even though maybe I will never talk to like my grandma about this, because this is something that is like, so sensitive to her, that like, even if I bring it up, she isn't ready to talk about it. But at least it gives me like, oh, she's not just my grandma, like, she lived this entire life, like, before I ever existed, not maybe not even thinking for me in the future, because she maybe didn't even realize that she was going to have grandchildren, but just this like, you know, her thought process or an idea of what her thought process could be, which is wild. But um, something that you mentioned about is being a family historian. So I am super curious to learn more about that. We've talked about this briefly when we we worked together like a few years ago. Um, But what does a family historian do? What do they like? What does it actually entail? Are like you mentioned it before you you went to Chile and Mexico and sat down and like recorded stories, but is it just stories? Like what are you what are you getting? Yeah. Um, you know, what a family historian does, honestly, I I can't say. <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm not an official family historian, or I guess like if you were to ask me to define what a family historian does. I feel like, again, everybody has so many different approaches and they can do so many different things. I guess what I've done as a family historian is what I imagine. It it just makes sense to me of what some family historians might do, but that is like sitting down with family members while tracking them down, sitting down with them and asking um, just questions about their history and guiding conversations along the way, trying to look for whatever information or stories you're looking for and just sitting down and recording it all. And on top of being a family historian, I also picked up the practice of genealogy and Mm. ancestrology. Wow. Um, Yeah, whole different they a uh, whole different thing, but they complement each other. So for genealogy, I did um, sit down with these with my family members and log all of the family data as well, in addition to their stories. Wow. So like I was sitting down with everybody and like making maps and saying like, okay, what's your full name? What's your partner's name? What's your kid's name? Um, when were you all born? Where do you have any medical history? Wow. How many kids do you have? Like all the questions. Yeah. Where were you born? Where did you move? Where are you currently living? All the questions. And I have that upstairs in a notebook. And this sounds like really high level work. But I honestly, like, I didn't plan for this. Didn't Google anything. Like, I did not know what I was doing. I showed up to Chile with a notebook from the 99 cent store. Um, and a pen and one day I was just talking to my tia and she's very like lively and she has a lot of stories and so she's just started talking and I was like wait a minute I gotta write all this stuff down Mm -hmm. so I took out my little 99 cent store notebook and she just kept talking and I kept asking questions and I kept scribbling in my notebook and then little by little she kept on um, she started introducing me you know, to other family members, and I would, you know, meet them and do the same. And it resulted in me, you know, traveling all throughout Chile to connect with these long lost family members and meeting a lot of family for the first time. They knew I existed. I had no idea they existed. Wow. Um, throughout Chile and Bolivia. So that was amazing. And then I went to Mexico later and did the same with that side of my family. Oh, my gosh, that sounds like like a movie, to be honest. <laughs> um, but 
So I have like follow up questions to that. I think I have like three. Let's see if I really can remember all of them. So the first one is, what was it like for your family to recount all of these stories to you? Because I know sometimes like, I think I tried doing that with maybe just like some of my closest aunts and uncles. And they were like, okay, these questions are like fun for a little bit, but I don't want to answer them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were also kind of thinking like, oh, why are you asking like all of these questions? This is not like super important. Like our life is now. I think one time I asked my parents, like, what was your identity before I existed? Like before you became a parent, like who were you? And I think they both laughed at me and they were like, that's not important. Like I'm your, I'm your mom and dad now. Like, you know, that's all that matters. Like, it doesn't matter who I was before. So what was your family's reaction like to actually open up so vulnerably to you? I mean, I don't even know if they realize like that could be vulnerable. Maybe it's just, you know, part of who they are, but I would love to, I guess, hear about it because my experience was not like that. Yeah. I would say it varied from person to person. You know, I had some people who are more closed off than others, some who are very open with sharing, very vulnerable and very touchy topics with me. I guess for me, like I came in with the mindset, like this is my one and only opportunity. I got to make it worth it. And then for some relatives, I know that they knew the same. Mm. Um, For some relatives that I met out there was the first and the first, the only and possibly the last time I would ever see them again. Um, Since, you know, since I've done this work, I think at least five of the people who I interviewed died. Wow. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. I I went in with that mindset. It's like, it's now or never. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And some people also approached me with the same, while others, like you mentioned, were saying like, the past is the past. I don't want to talk about it. But then they would still share anyways. Mm. Um, Yeah. Wow. Um, Okay. So second question to everything that you said before. Uh, So you said that you didn't know some of your family members, but majority of them knew about you. So what was that like, that realization of, I have people who maybe they don't like actively keep tabs on you, but they like think about you because you're family and you don't even know that that they exist. Like sometimes I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I could have like a cousin who knows about my existence. We were never connected. I don't even know their name, but they know me and they like just keep tabs on me. And maybe, you know, they're wishing me well wishes from wherever they are in the world or wherever stage they are. And that is wild because I that just like reminds me of one, how vast the world is. And then also not only how big it is, but how we really are so interconnected to each other without actually realizing how connected we are to each other. So yeah, what was that like for you? Yeah, so um, really interestingly, I guess an important part of this story is the fact that my my grandmother from Chile, she was the one who kept in touch with everybody back home. And it's it's such a fascinating story. Like you mentioned, it's movie status. The book is coming soon, I promise. I just I gotta work on it. Wow, I have so many things to do. But it's it's so interesting because I my grandmother, she was from Chile and she lived here in the United States with us. And um she kept in contact with everybody from Chile and Bolivia. And it was so fascinating because every time I met a new family member, they would, you know, I was busting around Chile and knocking on random people's doors, messaging them, calling them. 
And in Chile, because of the dictatorship, people are, um, what's the word? Like, no tienen mucha confianza. They don't trust yeah. everybody because yeah. of the dictatorship and they're, they perceive strangers as danger. But with me, open arms, they invited me over to their house, you know, no problem. And I know actually family members within the country who they wouldn't do that for. Mm. Um, so, so many things there, you know, dictatorship trauma, but also my privileges, you know, yeah. I'm that girl from America, that mm. um, that great grand niece from America <laughs> coming to visit, you know, people love that. But it was fascinating because my grandmother would keep in touch with all of these people. And they all had photos of me. So they knew exactly who I was. Wow. And, yeah. They had photos of me and my family and letters from my grandmother. And everybody adored my grandmother. They loved her. I loved her so much too, even though we had a language barrier, which was really sad. But she would keep in touch with everybody. And people would always tell me, your grandmother is the only person who ever cared about me in this family. Wow. She's the only person who ever checked in on me. Because my family is so, what's the word? The reason why we're split up is because a lot of like trauma, a lot of trauma and a lot of drama. Um, those <laughs> yes, two, the two those usually go two hand in ones. hand. <laughs> yeah. But everybody would say, your grandmother is the only person who ever cared about me. And, you know, I'm honored that you're doing this work in her name. Wow. So it was kind of like I was picking up where she left off. Wow. Um, yeah, because she would write letters, she would send photos and postcards, she would call people all the time. She would, um, she only went back to Chile one time before she became sick with cancer, and then she died. Hmm. Um, but everybody loved her. And I guess they were so receptive to me because they saw me as her, hmm. as an extension of her. And I feel the same exact way, because that's the spiritual woo woo part of this story. <laughs> Yeah, it's because I, I, I'm a strong believer that when my grandmother died, you know, some of her essence or her spirit really stayed with me. Yeah. And um, she, I have a strong feeling that she's the one who sent me on this journey um, mm -hmm. and guided me the whole way. So it was really beautiful. Oh, I love I love hearing this. Uh, this is first just like, thank you for sharing all of it. Because I feel like, you know, this is a lot of stuff, like a lot of your own family history. And okay, so from all of this, more questions came up. First one is what were some of the questions that you asked your family when you decided to kind of like record uh, your family history? Mm -hmm. And then the second question is, do you feel like this is, I don't want to say your legacy, but I don't know how to phrase this question. I guess like, is this like the whole legacy of your family? What does legacy actually mean to you? Because in marketing terms right now, everybody's talking about legacy. They're talking about brand legacy. You know, everybody's talking about um, Beyonce's legacy, although that's very valid. But, you know, sometimes people are talking about like building brand legacy and they're using it as a way to sell. And I don't think we take the time or we don't have the time to actually consider like the breadth of legacy. Because right now it's like one of those commodified words that like capitalism and marketing really is driving into us like, you know, legacy, 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 but nobody really understands maybe or really thinks about it. At least I in my circle, I don't know if a lot of people think about it. So yeah, those were the two questions. So what questions did you ask your family? And then also, what does legacy mean to you? And do you think like being a family historian is part or building that legacy, remembering that legacy, whatever that is? So I'll start with your second question first. Oh, okay. Um, because I'm a strong believer that this is my grandmother's legacy. This is mm. the legacy of, um, you know, all the women who have come before me. So this work is very sacred. 
I do believe that like I'm a part of this legacy and my work is an extension, you know, of the legacy of all of those who came before me, particularly the women who have come before me. I do think that I play an important role in, you know, capturing this history and continuing on this legacy work. Um, But I don't think it started with me and I don't think it'll end with me. It might. I don't know. Um, That's Mm -hmm. terrifying to think about. But that's why I want to write a book about it, because that's how, you know, ideas and legacies live on forever. Just a side note here for people who are listening. I may or may not have kids because I'm gay. So like, (laughs) what's going to happen now? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Maybe we should mention that. (laughs) (laughs) What's going to happen now? Yeah. And also, like, in my generation, in my family, there's not a lot of people who are interested in this work. And as the generations go on, you know, so much gets lost. So that's the legacy question. Mm -hmm. But I'm going back to your question about what kind of questions I ask people. I mean, I never sat down with somebody and asked them like uh, very curated questions like, tell me the story of your life or um, tell me about who you were before, like the question that you asked or tell me about, you know, how the dictatorship impacted you. Like I never asked any of those questions. It was very much like I would show up, we would have onse, which is like tea time. And they would just start reminiscing about mostly about my grandmother, (laughs) and about how much they loved her and how, you know, she was the only person who cared about them. And then they would, I'm very receptive, and I'm I'm a very good communicator. So they would say something that piqued my interest, I would like feel something go off in my brain, like, Oh, that's interesting. And then I would just ask a follow up question, like, Oh, tell me, can you tell me more about this? Mm -hmm. Or like, can you tell me, you know, I would ask a complimentary question to whatever they were already talking about. And then I would just like, write everything down, scribble it out. And oftentimes, it resulted in people telling me like, some of their deepest, darkest secrets. (laughs) Or, you know, some of their deepest, darkest secrets, some of their favorite stories, some of their not so favorite stories, some of their traumas, some of their histories, like, yeah, I never went in like with the intention of like, oh, I, I want to, you know, ask this particular question so I can figure out this particular answer. In some cases, I did like when I wanted to know like, oh, what happened to this family member who just kind of like disappeared? Like my grandfather, like, what happened to him? Why? Did, <laughs> why did he? Why did he leave? So I would ask pinpointed questions when necessary. But that wasn't usually what I led with. Hmm. So more like organic stuff. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. I do feel like maybe I'm not very good at that because I'm just like, yeah, tell me. <laughs> but I, I do feel like it requires maybe two, whoever's there, two, three people to come in with that openness and willingness to kind of just share so honestly as well and kind of like share not in a way to like teach a lesson or to, I don't know, whatever it is. It's more just sharing because... I want to kind of bring you into my circle and I want you to understand like my own context, like where I'm coming from, which is really, really different than, oh, I'm going to share because I want to teach you a lesson or like, you know, this is a piece of advice or something, which I mean, could come from like the stories and stuff, but it comes differently, I guess, when somebody's trying to teach you a lesson or give you a piece of advice when they're just like, hey, uh, you're here, I trust you and I would like to really give you this piece of me so that you can also understand who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's amazing. So what are some, if you are like comfortable sharing, uh, what are some of the stories, lessons, history? And one of our other people that we uh, interviewed for the podcast, Shiva, talked about ancestral wisdom. So these are things that like your ancestors passed down that basically 
um, help you or whomever the community live better together. I would say listen to Shiva's episode to actually get the definition. That was like a really paraphrased version. Um, but do you have any stories, lessons, histories, ancestral wisdoms that uh, you're willing to share with some of the listeners, well, the listeners, and some that you're like just collecting and saving for yourself that you want to pass down to whatever your legacy or um, ancestry will look like? Yeah. In my case in particular, I love that some people are able to access ancestral wisdom. <laughs> in my case in particular, I don't think from what I collected, I was able to document much of that at all. Because again, most people wanted to share about their trauma and their drama. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah, it wasn't much about like, here, here's this ancestral wisdom regarding like our culture or our cultural practices or anything like that, or how to live better together as a community. Mm. My family is so complicated. And it's a lot of like, I hate this. I hate these people. I don't want anything to do with them. How dare they like that is very much oh, wow. my family. So much trauma because dictatorship, politics, poverty, complicated. But I will share like, I guess some, I guess some of my favorite family stories, they're not very fun. They're not very uplifting. They're not very happy. But I guess the most impactful, you know, person that I met, um, who's history, you know, impacted me the most was my tío Lalo. Hmm. Um, he is my long lost great uncle. He is my, mm, he's my mom's cousin. No, he's my grandmother's nephew. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's my mom's cousin. But he had been separated from my family for like 50 years. 50? Five zero. Five zero. Wow. Um, because he um, he's great. He's fantastic. Love him. He's a fisherman. He lives off of the coast of Valparaiso, which is a co the coastal region in Chile. He's a fisherman. He built his own house on this hill from scratch. But my family kind of lost connection with him during the dictatorship because he became an orphan. He became an orphan and, um, you know, after his parents died, first his mom died, then later his dad died. After he became an orphan, he didn't like the way that he was being mistreated by my family. And so he left and he was like a hippie living on the streets. And this story is fascinating, too, because I think it's important to um, recognize the faults in memory and misunderstanding and misrecollection. Mm -hmm. Because when I first met him, you know, and my Spanish was not perfect. And I didn't really understand all the nuances and complications in my family. Like, I truly believe that he was an orphan and that um, he was abandoned and he was kicked out and that he lived in the streets and all these things. Like, I, I have it written down in my notebooks upstairs, like from interviews that I have with him and from other things that my family had, had said to me. And then I went to Chile this year, actually, for the first time in five years. And I asked him again more about his history. And that the second part of what I just told you about him being an orphan and leaving because he didn't like the way that the family was treating him for being an orphan. Like, that's the truth. <laughs> So <laughs> it was very complicated for me to come to terms with that. Like, huh, so all that stuff I had recorded before, where did that come from? Because obviously I have it written down. There's different, I have different accounts of it from different people, different perspectives, even from my own uncle. Like, how did I get that he was kicked out of the family and lived in the gutters? Well, he did live in the gutters and he did live in the ships. That's actually how he became a fisherman. He left when he was like 14. Wow. Um, but the way he explained it to me the second time around gave me a better understanding of what really happened and kind of gave me what I feel is, I don't know, how do I, how do I say, gave me a better understanding of the quote unquote truth. Because mm -hmm. what I, I apparently what I had written and understood before wasn't 
the full picture. Yeah, and I don't know how I got there, but that's just one of the many stories that, you know, I captured while I was out there. And he's my favorite uncle. He is so cool. One of the most open-minded, kind-hearted people out there. And I went to Chile this year because um, he actually has cancer now. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to go help him gain access to a surgery for his tumors and stuff. But yeah. Wow. <laughs> Which, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because one, I do think, you know, memory, we all remember things from like what our point of view, especially when there's trauma and drama involved, then communication, things get skewed. I love that like you were able to actually interview him twice. The first time when your Spanish was, you know, not fully there to understand all the nuance. And then the second time, I believe your Spanish has improved. So you are able to understand like more nuance and like more, and he's able to also even share more like details because you are able to understand more, which is just wild because like how many people get that opportunity to like interview a family member twice Mm -hmm. and then also like ask the same things or hear the same story and then kind of piece it together again. This is like a detective mystery thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I definitely felt like a detective when I was out there. Wow. That (laughs) is so wild. And I'm just thinking about like all the people who are part of the diaspora or who are multicultural and maybe we don't speak like our family's language or we have like a a lower level of comprehension or of like speaking and how, I don't know if you would have the answer for this, but is there a way that we could still connect with people? Do you have like a suggestion? It's okay if you don't. I mean, that was kind of like just a question. Yeah. Um, do you mean if I have a suggestion for people who can't communicate? Mm-hmm. I yeah. guess like speaking the same language. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, this kind of dives in a little bit more into like my history with my grandmother. I mentioned that, I, I think I mentioned that she grew up with us here in the United States and I had a language barrier with her. She only, she spoke Spanish and I spoke Spanish growing up, but then I kind of lost it as I went to school. And again, I was on my like, what's the word trying to escape everything and anyone like everything that of who I was trying to get the heck out the neighborhood XYZ. But she and I were actually close, even though we couldn't communicate, we didn't have many conversations, but we would spend time together. And she also she had cancer too. So I would be at the hospital. I was like in seventh grade, sixth grade, like at the hospital visiting her, you know, I I spent quite a bit of time with her. I also shared a room with her. And as silly as this sounds, um, and how cringy it sounds to me, or as I'm looking back, I'm like, wow, if I can go back in time, I would change so many things. But um, how I started spending so much time with my grandmother is because I live in a three bedroom condo, we we all had to share a room. So I would share with her and my sister. But also, at some point, my I was like 13. This was like, what, 2006? seven, eight, somewhere in that era. Or I think I was like 10, 11, 12, somewhere around those years. But my grandmother got a computer and this was in the era of Facebook and I wanted to be on the computer all the time. And mm-hmm. so I was just in her room all the time, <laughs> like next to her, but like so enveloped in like the computer and, you know, the internet while my grandmother who holds this ancestral wisdom, this whole complicated history, so much knowledge, you know, I was in proximity with her, but not connecting or communicating with her. And, you know, it's because we had a language barrier and because I was a teenager and I, you know, was so caught up in the socials, just like how, you know, teenagers are today. But I 
for folks who have a language barrier, I think that um, at least spending time with somebody is important. And even if you realize that you're spending time with them or not, I don't know how to explain. Like, like that passively? was my, yeah, passively. Like that was very much me. I was just like all the time on the computer and she was in her room, like watching her telenovelas or like hanging out. But um, that's how we spent time together. And also before before the age of the computer and when I was a kid, she would watch me after school sometimes and she worked at a beauty parlor down the street from my house. And so I would go with her to work and I would just read the magazines all day and like sweep up the, the hair. And, you know, she would buy me an ice cream and we couldn't communicate, but we still hung out. And yeah, again, even though I couldn't communicate with her, I was hanging out. When she got sick, I would visit her, you know, I try to be by her side. And when she died too, I was also there holding her hand. So even though we didn't, we weren't able to communicate and I wasn't able to gain this rich history from her, I had to go all the way to Chile and look for all these people just to piece together the past when I could have just learned Spanish and talked to her. You know, there's so many different ways to do this. And I don't think that people should necessarily be ashamed of a language barrier. Mm. And if folks do have a language barrier, know that, you know, you can work on it. But also, in the meantime, you can still spend time with your loved ones and communicate across the barrier through gestures, through spending time with one another, just checking in and being there when people when people need you. Yeah, that's my recommendation. I love that. I do have a similar situation with my grandma. So my grandparents on my dad's side of the family, they have passed. But my grandparents on my mom's side of the family are still with us. And I, my grandpa speaks um, English. Mm. Well, he like spoke more English when I was younger. I don't know how much English he speaks now. But he's a little bit easier to communicate with because we don't have such like a large language barrier. Um, With my grandma, though, she didn't really learn English. And I remember one time I went to go visit her just to see how she was doing. We just sat in her apartment. I think she tried to give us a lot of cookies. And she just kept asking us, like, do we want to eat something? And she actually told me, and I think she also has dementia now. So this, I think, confession that she basically gave was because of the dementia. I don't think she would have said it otherwise. But she did say like, oh, I have all these grandchildren. I have my kids. My kids like barely speak Vietnamese because they came over when they were like my mom came over when she was to the United States when she was a a teenager. So most of my uh, aunts and uncles on my mom's side of the family also came over when they were teenagers or a little bit even younger. They've now spent most of their life speaking English and in the US. So she was like, okay, I've got my kids. They like kind of ish speak Vietnamese and then she was like in the and now my grandkids like we can't even talk and I remember like when I would try to talk to her in Vietnamese my Spanish since I've been living in Spain now for a longer time my Spanish overtook the Vietnamese part so it like filled in the gaps where I didn't know the words in Vietnamese so I would start off in Vietnamese and then it came out in Spanish and then I had to translate in English and then I had to go look for the word again in Vietnamese because I was like, the heck is going on here? And I just saw how I think sad she was because I feel like she wanted to share so much more. Maybe not like super intense stories and like history because she might not feel comfortable, but just share more of like, hey, I want to talk to you. I'm sad that we can't talk. And I'm sad of like the circumstance that, you know, we're here and like we really can't communicate. And then I also think she was potentially reminiscing and thinking, oh, but I'm also happy because we're here and like, look at how well my children have done for themselves. Look at like my grandchildren. They're like so old now. They're driving. Like they're picking me up to go to Target. I don't have to, like I'm not 
fully alone, but I'm alone because nobody can talk to me. So I don't know. It's like this duality. I do feel like, you know, spending time with her and just like being there. She also appreciates, even though we can't actually talk, even though sometimes I think she's looking at us like, what are you doing? (laughs) She just doesn't say anything. Who knows? So, okay. Other question for you more around like um, being a family historian. Um, What do you hope to pass down to others by recording your family's history? And what actually counts as family history to record? Let's see. In my personal life, like my hope in passing down this family history is that people, you know, in my family uh, who come from, you know, our same, our shared origin know like, okay, so this is what happened. And this is why things are the way that they are. Because I have a lot of family and we're all, everyone's in the same situation. We all feel alone and like we have no family and we're spread across throughout all of Latin America. Mm. And now like it's expanding to the world, but we all feel alone and we don't understand like what the heck happened or like why do we have any family for example my mom is the only one from her family like in california Hmm. that's it it's me like and her her children that's her family and that's it everyone else is in chile and bolivia yeah and i know i have like when i met my cousins or like my uncles they would all tell me the same thing they're like i feel so alone and i have no family and i don't know why i'm like i have 200 names here and i have all the data for all of our family like what do you mean we're all alone and we all feel the same way because of all the trauma and the drama that happened to my family throughout the past forever (laughs) it feels like forever now since i went as back to like 1900 so much wow trauma and drama there so that's my hope in my personal life that you know people who I share an origin with like they understand like what the heck happened and how we got there because that's how I originally started I felt going back to the theme of feeling lost the reason why I felt so lost and the reason why I was striving to get the heck out of here was because in my personal life I've had a lot of trauma and a lot of drama and like in my personal household and family and I would always ask myself like why me why my family? What the heck happened? Like, how did we get to this point of so much dysfunction and pain and trauma? Because it's been real. It's been really real. The level of pain that my that I've experienced, that my siblings have experienced, my parents have experienced. And I'm, you know, I was always curious, like, how the heck did we get here? Because I will share listeners, like I'm a survivor of child abuse. And, mm. you know, my parent is a recovering addict. Well, one of my parents is a recovering addict and the other one is, you know, committed child abuse. Like, um, but that's okay. (laughs) This sounds very strange into any and all the people out there who, you know, share these same histories with either having addicted parents and or who are survivors of abuse. I want to let you all know that this is just my personal experience. And, you know, it doesn't have to be okay for you. But when it doesn't have to be okay for you, and I hope that, you know, we all find the healing and um, that we deserve and in our own paths and journeys and ways. But for me, I've come to a level of peace mm-hmm. um, with, you know, my family history and have actually been able to come back and help heal a lot of my family trauma. And I've since having, um, well, first going away to college and then studying abroad and doing all this work, like I've come back and there's been huge, huge, huge transformations and healing mm-hmm. for all the individuals in my immediate household. Um, we've worked together past so much of the past dramas and 
um, traumas and dramas and, you know, we're healthier than ever. You know, we still have our bumps in the road, but there's been so much healing and so much peace and so much, what's the word, repair of relationships mm-hmm. with ourselves and with our parents. So it's been really beautiful to to witness and be a part of this journey. Mm. Okay, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that as well. Yeah. So what counts as family history then? What would you record? Um, Family history can be very complicated. And there's like a social responsibility aspect to it. In my personal life, like, uh, like I mentioned in Chile, everybody has drama with each other, everybody has trauma with each other, everyone, like I'll interview somebody and they'll say like, don't talk to this other person, they suck. And then I'll go interview the other person and be like, don't talk to this person, they suck. And then they will tell on each other like this person did that to me and this person did that to me. So everybody, you know, I've come to understand that People are very multifaceted and complex and complicated human beings. And they're allowed to be, you know, oftentimes people who are, how do I say, people who like in my personal family dynamic, like people who have committed abuse are also in what's the word, they've also been survivors of the same hardships. Hmm. Um, And I don't want to excuse that for anybody. But it just puts things into perspective. Like, okay, people are all types of people are doing all types of things to each other. Like not, not one person is perfect. Mm. You know, everybody's complicated. Everybody has their flaws. Everybody has their moments. So when it comes to recording this family history where, you know, it's so complicated and messy and everybody's telling on each other, but nobody wants other people to find out about what, you know, what has happened to them or what um, they've done to others. I feel like it's my social responsibility to hold on to this history in a way that respects, honors, and recognizes the complexity of who these human beings are while not villainizing them. Mm. And it's complicated because as a family historian, like I have all the raw data, all the juicy, juicy stuff in my little 99 cent store notebooks upstairs. But the family history that I would publish and share with the world might have to be a little bit, I I don't want to say, like my personal family history, like with my family members, I think I would be able to give them a little bit more of a deeper diver authenticity authentic account Hmm. um, while having to shape and mold and preserve certain aspects of stories. Yeah. But on the other side, like I want to publish a book featuring this incredibly beautifully sad transformative journey of like my family. But in doing that and publishing that with the world, I know it's going to have to come with some quote unquote censorship. It's going to have to come with me really doing my part to be, I don't know what, what I would consider quote unquote, like socially responsible. So people aren't villainized Hmm. um, for what they have done and and, or like um, what has happened to them. I don't know how to explain. It's very, very, very complicated. But but yeah, Hmm. yeah, that's how I would go about sharing the family history and what is family history what is there to record i think what's most important is the the stories of how we all got to where we are i think Mm. that should be like the focus and every good story focuses on transformation of character and person so if i can capture that that's what's most important to me because i don't want anyone to be um, perceived as a one-dimensional yeah being and being villainized and or um What's the word? Being villainized and or being written off as the one thing that they were once. You know, Mm. I want to focus on 
the expansion of who they are, the totality of who they are yeah. is complex human beings. So complicated, but yes. No, this this actually reminds me, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Ugle. No, but, Evelyn but I've heard Ugle. about it. Okay. okay. Everything that you just described, I will not add spoilers. So if you all are going to read it, I highly recommend because that book was so good. But the book basically recounts uh, Evelyn, the main character, Evelyn's story, And at the end of the book, it's like this culmination of emotions you feel as the reader of like, I want to hate this person. I can't hate this person because I just understand what you were saying, like the totality of their human experience and why they made the choices that they made. And it gives you this like this feeling of duality that most people like most of us, we don't know what to do with duality because it's like, how can I be happy and sad at the same time? Like, how can I love and appreciate this character or this person and also be so upset with them? And I feel like if you are going to explore family history it's holding that duality and not trying to like shape and mold it like you were saying to villainize somebody or to make somebody the hero or you know in um western literature there's always like the underdog that comes out on top um or the cinderella story like these are true human experiences that just are so multifaceted so multilayered uh and they make you question because that is i Personally, this is getting very deep and like meta now, but it really makes you question like I, what is good? What is bad? I mean, there's, you know, don't be racist and don't be sexist. Uh, And among other things, don't be, you know, those stuff. Um, But, you know, like I made choices that I maybe aren't like the best, but I stand by them because X, Y, Z or, you know, something else. And I, I love just like everything that you shared. And it just really reminded me of, again, uh, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I highly recommend um, anybody to read if you have not. Okay, so uh, moving on from Family Historian, because I feel like we could talk about this for forever. I do want to talk about like your actual work now, um, which is being a global education DEI specialist. So can you share what a global education DEI specialist does and maybe some of like examples of what you do for your clients? Sure. So um, what I do for work is very much tied to, you know, the whole history that you all just listened to. Yeah. So I'm a global education DEI specialist, like on a mission to support historically underserved students, because I was a historically underserved student, like I mentioned, having a hard time living on campus at university, being a first gen low income student, and I needed to get away. So I studied abroad. And then I kept studying abroad. And I kept going and going. <laughs> and it allowed me to become a family historian and meet my family and heal a lot of trauma you know, within myself, within my extended family. And I think the greatest gift of all has been the ability to come back home and um, help heal and restore my family here in East LA. And that has been the greatest gift for me. And um, I do the work that I do in supporting historically underserved students because I recognize the immense value that education opportunities can have for historically underserved students and everybody has their own journey. So while this was my journey, my journey was to go study abroad and learn all these things, become family historian, come back, help heal my family. For other students, it it could be the same case, could be similar, or it could be something completely different. 
What I know, like point blank period, is that equitable education experiences are a catalyst for transformation Mm. for historically underserved students. Like, had I not gone to college, I don't think I would have gone through the such a huge transformation that I have in this short period of time, right? Mm. I haven't, I wouldn't have experienced all the things I did. I wouldn't have changed and transformed and grown um, in the way that I have. Yes. And that's not to say that people who don't go to college don't have these experiences. I just think that for me and for historically underserved students who are oriented towards school, like the college experience and or study abroad experiences and or other experiential education experiences are the catalyst. Like, how do I say it's a way of um, concentrating opportunity for transformation. Hmm. Um, So that's why I do what I do. But what I what I do is I mostly work in international education. That's why it's global education, DEI specialist. Global is a more inclusive way of me framing that international education aspect. But what I do is I provide consulting, I train teams, and I create content for institutions, organizations, and companies who are Mm. looking to better support their historically underserved student populations. Mm. Um, And this all goes back to me and my experiences, you know, studying abroad, because it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And if you ask a lot of people about their study abroad, particularly historically underserved students, especially like BIPOC, LGBTQ plus students, low income students, will tell you it was the best of times, but it was the worst of times. Because yes, you know, I was able to, you know, study abroad in Brazil and Mexico and Chile and travel and meet my family and learn languages and all the things like I was also hungry because I had no money. And I also, you know, experienced all these health issues. And I was also sad and depressed, like, best of times and worst of times. So I'm on a mission to better support these students so they can have a better, more successful time abroad. Because, you know, as much as a great time I was having, it could have easily gone a lot more south than it did because I did experience, you know, issues with like food insecurity, mental health issues, health issues, X, Y, Z. So that's what I do. And that's why I do it. And it all ties back to my personal experiences. And in case anybody's wondering, global education DEI specialist, that's a title I made up by myself. Yes, I I remember. (laughs) Yeah, actually with Cassandra. Cassandra was my um, marketing and messaging coach. Yeah. Fantastic. Without Cassandra, I wouldn't be where I am today because what I do, I do it as an entrepreneur. I'm not affiliated with a college or university or institution. And I've been working at it for three years now. And it's been been a a lot of work, but it's been so worth it Um, because I know how much, you know, education and educational experiences, particularly studying abroad changed my life. And I know how it can change others too. Yeah. Oh, okay. So uh, follow up question to all of that. Um, What is something that most people overlook when offering international education for their students or their teams? Uh, What do they overlook? I think what a lot of professionals in international education overlook is the nuanced experience Mm. of people with marginalized identities, which is why I do what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because everybody, I guess the mainstream people who have historically studied abroad, particularly like white women who have made up the majority of study abroad for the past decades, you know, they'll describe it as like, or, you know, white men who are the most privileged on these programs might say like, it was totally awesome. I had no issues. It was amazing. I got to travel. Oh my gosh, cheap beer. Yeah. 
it was so quote unquote cheap. I was able to do all these things. Yeah, without taking and, you know, these people may be the ones who go on to be in charge and, you know, to set up more programs and things like that without taking into consideration like, okay, well, what is it like for first gen low income BIPOC LGBTQ people with disabilities? Different, mm. <laughs> very different, very different. Yeah. The, yeah. So, um, you know, those were my experiences abroad. And I did, you know, have to navigate a lot of challenges um, due to who I am and the different identities that I hold and the lack of resources that I had as a first-gen low-income person. The food insecurity was rough. The mm. not being able to, to eat was rough. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's mm. why I do what I do. <laughs> so, okay. So going from that and like just like the nuance of it all, because I love exploring nuance. And actually, that is um, one of the last questions that I will ask you after this. Uh, so this is like the third to last question, I guess. How do you think your identities impact how you navigate your day to day? This is something that like we talk a lot about on the on the podcast, just like identity in general and like culture and belonging and just like exploring identity. But how do you think your identity impacts not just like, I guess, your work, but how you show up and what you do and all of that stuff? Because like you mentioned, you are low income or you came from a low income family. You are first gen. You are queer. You are disabled. Well. I have chronic health conditions. Maybe. Yes, you have chronic health conditions. Yeah. Sorry, you you have chronic health That's conditions. Okay. Thank you for also, catching also that. can qualify. You know, yeah. it depends on how people want to, um, I guess, identify and or label because people with chronic health conditions can totally and absolutely do qualify as being disabled. Just wanted yeah. to say that one, but I don't like to say that I'm disabled. Just out of personal preference to honor those who have severe disabilities, but that could also, I, I got some things to work through. We'll come back to that <laughs> yeah. another time. Okay, you were saying. Um, yeah, so how do your identities impact how you navigate your day-to-day? Yeah, oh, my identities definitely impact the way I navigate day-to-day. I'm still first-gen, I'm still low-income, I'm still queer, I still have these chronic <laughs> health conditions. Yeah, It's been really rough. In my day-to-day life, I just do my best. Like, I'm taking this podcast meeting from my kitchen that's falling apart in my low-income housing. Um, I put on the little screen so nobody can see the background. You know, not having resources as a first-gen low-income entrepreneur. For the past three years, I've made very, very, very little money. Like I'm talking little money, like $5,000 last year. So wow, it's been it's been really rough. So mm-hmm. not having resources, like again, like um, nice places to do meetings can be rough, mm-hmm. especially because I meet with important people. I meet with, you know, presidents of universities and CEOs and fancy people from all around the world. I'm like, ha calling in from my kitchen table and my kitchen that's falling apart. Um, being low income, not having access to, you know, purchase essentials like food can be really rough sometimes. Um, I'm on the up and up though. Shout out to EBT last year. Oh my God. Food stamps helped save my life this year. I decided to get off of them because I'm actually making more money. Yay. (laughs) So I I can be off of food stamps, but again, um, making that money work for me can also be, you know, kind of a challenge. Um, I have to cook all my meals at home, hardly ever eat out, don't buy anything ever. (laughs) It's been rough. Um, So yeah, that's being low income, being LGBTQ plus can also be complicated, especially in my neighborhood Mm -hmm. um, with the people that I live with may or may not be quite open. And I'm, you know, sometimes get a little bit you know, nervous or worried about, you know, being able to walk around. So my partner, she comes around. So she's been a little bit more visible. And I really don't know what my neighbors think about me, but we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, all that all that to say on again, 
lastly with my chronic health conditions that definitely impacts my day to day. Like I'm, I'm oftentimes like in a lot of pain or chronically fatigued and that impacts my work and my ability to, to show up in a way that feels good. Um, But I work through these things every day. And I think that holding these um, identities helps me show up in a way that's more authentic. Mm. Now that, you know, I've always been this person, right? I've always been the first gen, low income, multicultural, queer girl with chronic health conditions. But if you were to have asked me five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you any of that. Mm. I would have been like, uh, I don't know, I'm just me. And I have no idea who I am or where I come from. Yeah. But now I've you know, going through these experiences abroad, I've been able to learn these things about myself. You know, it's put a lot of things into perspective. Yeah, like being able to learn like, oh, yeah, you're really, you know, relative to um, other folks at university, you are so low income, you know, oh, you were in the closet for so many years. Mm. Oh, you are sick, you have chronic health conditions. That makes so much sense. Mm. Um, Before, you know, I didn't try to address or try to understand who I was. I just kept masking and like yeah, working and going to school and all those things. So yeah, all that to say, those are the ways that my identities impact the way I show up in the world. But now that I know um, exactly who I am and where I come from, it allows me to show up so much more authentically in my mm. everyday and in my professional life too. Mm, I love that. And just like understanding like the history too of it all, I think is amazing. Okay, so I know we are wrapping up. Um, So I have two last questions for you before um, you can share how people can connect with you. The first one is what is a nuanced conversation you think we're not having enough of? And then the second one is um, a journaling prompt. But I would love to hear the nuanced conversation that you think we're not having enough of first. A nuanced conversation that we're not having enough of as a culture or as a society here in the United States, I think is what we were talking about earlier, the complexity Mm. of the of human identities and human experiences. I am um, what's the word I am in rehabilitation from cancel culture. Um, Mm. Not not me being canceled, but rather me being the counselor. Mm. Um, that was very ingrained from in me from high school and college, um, like those years of my life, but going on these experiences or having these experiences and, um, you know, being able to connect with and meet really complex human beings and understand their complexity and their, their nuanced experiences has helped me understand like, okay, it's not okay to cancel people based off of like this one interaction, this one experience is one image or this one imagined um, Mm. narrative we have about them. Yeah, because there have definitely been, you know, small moments here and there in my life, particularly like my professional career, where I'm like, oh, dang, this person must think I'm awful because, you know, this one interaction we had where I, you know, was having a a rough time or a hard day, or um, I said something that, you know, I didn't intend to be harmful, but it was. Yeah. You know, and, you know, those thoughts stay in my head and they, they kind of like live there like uh, haunting me because I'm like, oh, yeah. my God, what do other people think about me? But then I remember like I'm an awesome, amazing human being with so much love. I approach everything I do with love and kindness, you know, and we're all human. We all, you know, have our days. We all yeah. slip up and we all make mistakes. And that's OK. So as much compassion as I have for others, I'm trying to have for myself as well. But I think that's a conversation we're not having enough of because I do see I still I do still see that cancel culture is very prevalent. Yeah. And, 
you know, I think that it's important to hold people accountable. And I think it's important to have a more socially responsible culture. But I don't think that cancel culture is the solution to doing that. Yeah, yeah, especially coming from like an abolitionist perspective or like a transformative justice perspective. Like, um, again, it's about understanding the complexity of of people and their experiences and tracking or trusting their transformation and helping each other along the way. I think that's what life is about, right? We're all in this together. We're all in this playing a role in each other's transformation. And we Mm. should be lifting each other up you know, and helping each other transform and grow and learn yeah. Um, rather than shutting each other out. But, it, you know, even that answer is very nuanced and yeah. complicated because there are definitely situations in which, you know, it's also not, especially not marginalized people's responsibility hmm. to be helping these people transform, if that makes sense, right? Yes. So it's very complicated. I just try to approach everybody with grace and kindness and um what's the word not make any assumptions and if if they're fumbling and you know making a fool of themselves I will let them do that and um I will step in and educate as needed but besides that I'm kind of letting people have their own journey and self-discovery and Mm. trying to assist them along the way rather than um, being punitive towards them and like punishing them for making mistakes yeah yeah Mm, love that. And nobody has brought up cancel culture yet on the podcast, but I feel like that's definitely um, a nuanced conversation that we're not having enough of. Okay, so before we wrap up this conversation, um, do you have a journaling prompt or exploratory question for the people listening? Um, I always like to end each podcast episode with a journaling prompt, something that people can kind of like think or reflect on. Um, It could be related to what we talked about today, or it could be something totally different if you want to. Yeah, I mean, it's again, super cheesy journaling prompt, but I think a good one to start with could be, who am I and where do I come from? Mm. And um, there's so many different ways to start answering that and exploring that. And as and as you're working on this prompt, if you feel stuck or you come to realize like, like how I did back when before I started this journey, I was like, hey, I don't know anything about who I am or where I come from. <laughs> Maybe that can inspire you to do a little digging and go on your journey to find out. Mm. And even like, I mean, I've been working on like that question for a while. I don't think I've ever answered the question of where do I come from? I feel like I'm always looking like, oh, this is where I want to go. Or this is who I want to be. This is who I am. Um, I'm stripping back layers, blah, blah, blah. But I never think back to, hmm, where am I actually coming from? And who am I actually coming from? Like, yes, my mom and dad. But even like their layers, their multifaceted history, uh, my grandparents' layers, like my grandparents' multifaceted history. So I will be exploring that. Okay. So thank you, Elizabeth, for being here. This conversation has been amazing. I love like hearing more about your family and just about your journey. Um, Is there anything that you are excited about in the upcoming months that you'd like to share with people? And then also where can people connect and find you? Sure. Some exciting things in the next couple of months. For all the listeners here, I, after I saw the Barbie movie, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm also Barbie. 
um, because I, <laughs> I'm a global education DEI specialist. I'm a family historian. I'm a genealogist. I'm an ancestrologist. I'm a writer. I'm also an education researcher. Um, I do so many different things, but um, regarding like the, the things I'm looking forward to, um, I'm doing some education research work actually on genocide education. Mm. Um, and I will be going to Germany to learn about the Holocaust in wow. October. So in a couple of weeks, I'll be in Germany. I'll be in Germany. So Oh my God. <laughs> it'll be my first time coming to Europe. Never been. I've only been in Latin America and the Americas. So first time. Cassandra, you're in Spain. I don't know um, <laughs> if we'll I can catch a train. This. If you want to yeah. pop on by, say yeah, hi. I would love to. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to in October. And I possibly might go to Chile and Argentina with my partner. I'm, you know, have Chilean background family and she has Argentine family and background. So um, this will be our first international trip together. And also, you know, going back to our places of origin to hang out and be with each other's family. So it'll be so fun and so cute. So I am. Oh, that'll be so fun. I can't wait to see the um, Instagram photos if you share about them. (laughs) Um, And then how can people connect with you? Where can people connect with you and all of that stuff? I am a LinkedIn girly. Yeah. You can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. (laughs) I will put that in the show notes for the people who want to connect with you on LinkedIn. Yeah. You can find me on LinkedIn um, at Elizabeth Raquel Garcia. Um, That's me. Elizabeth is spelled um, with an S and no H. Um, (laughs) Yes. So I will be there. Um, I do have other socials as well, but it's interesting because I've had to silo some of my identities. So Mm. some of them just will have to be kept secret until, until further notice. Um, But yeah, (laughs) if you want to stay connected with me for now, you can find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Um, And I was just like, wait, what siloed identities? And I was like, oh, wait, I know. I think Uh, I know. I have a pen name. (laughs) Okay, so that will be for another conversation. But thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining and for sharing so vulnerably about your family and your like history and just about like your identities as well. I love talking to you. Um, And I think this is like the first time that we've had the chance to, well, I think for me to actually listen to like the whole thing. Uh, When we were working together, I got like a little bit of it, but not to like this extent. So this has been such a treat for me to like learn more about you. For everybody else listening, if you have thoughts, questions, comments, want to just dive deeper into whatever Elizabeth shared, uh, feel free to message me on Instagram at Cassandra TLE. But other than that, I will see you in the next episode. Stay fierce, fam. If you're hearing this message, that means you made it to the end of this episode. Yay. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and thought to yourself, whoa, it me. I'd love if you could share this with others, post about it on social media, and or leave a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe too. Want to hang out with me in other areas of the internet? You can follow me on Instagram at CassandraTLE. For brand message and content marketing tips and resources, check out my business at The Corky Pineapple Studio. Thanks again and see you in the next episode. Stay fierce, fam.